0: Chapter Thirty Five of The Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Thirty Five. Next day, the mast steps clear and everything in readiness, we started to get the two top masts aboard. The main top mast was over thirty feet in length; the top foremast nearly thirty, and it was of these that I intended making the shears. It was puzzling work fastening one end of a heavy tackle to the windlass and with the other end fast to the butt of the foretopmast i began to heave maud held the turn on the windlass and coiled down the slack we were astonished at the ease with which the spar was lifted it was an improved crank windlass and the purchase it gave was enormous of course what it gave us in power we paid for in distance As many times as it doubled my strength, that many times was doubled the length of rope I heaved in. The tackle dragged heavily across the rail, increasing its drag as the spar rose more and more out of the water, and the exertion on the windlass grew severe. But when the butt of the topmast was level with the rail, everything came to a standstill. "'I might have known it,' I said impatiently. "'Now we have to do it all over again.' why not fasten the tackle part way down the mast maud suggested it's what i should have done at first i answered hugely disgusted with myself slipping off a turn i lowered the mast back into the water and fastened the tackle a third of the way down from the butt in an hour what of this and of rests between the heaving i had hoisted it to the point where i could hoist no more eight feet of the butt was above the rail and i was as far away as ever from getting the spar on board i sat down and pondered the problem it did not take long i sprang jubilantly to my feet now i have it i cried i ought to make the tackle fast at the point of balance and what we learn of this will serve us with everything else we have to hoist aboard once again i undid all my work by lowering the mast into the water but i miscalculated the point of balance so that when I heaved, the top of the mast came up instead of the butt. Maud looked despair, but I laughed and said it would do just as well. Instructing her how to hold a turn and be ready to slack away at command, I laid hold of the mast with my hands and tried to balance it inboard across the rail. When I thought I had it, I cried to her to slack away, but the spar righted, despite my efforts, and dropped back toward the water again i heaved it up to its old position for i had now another idea i remembered the watch-tackle a small double and single block affair and fetched it while i was rigging it between the top of the spar and the opposite rail wolf larsen came on the scene we exchanged nothing more than good mornings and though he could not see he sat on the rail out of the way and followed by the sound all that i did Again instructing Maud to slack away at the windlass when I gave the word, I proceeded to heave on the watch-tackle. Slowly the mast swung in until it balanced at right angles across the rail. And then I discovered to my amazement that there was no need for Maud to slack away. In fact, the very opposite was necessary. Making the watch-tackle fast i hove on the windlass and brought in the mast inch by inch till its top tilted down to the neck and finally its whole length lay on the deck i looked at my watch it was twelve o'clock my back was aching sorely and i felt extremely tired and hungry and there on the deck was a single stick of timber to show for a whole morning's work for the first time i thoroughly realized the extent of the task before us but i was learning i was learning the afternoon would show far more accomplished and it did for we returned at one o'clock rested and strengthened by a hearty dinner in less than an hour i had the main topmast on deck and i was constructing the shears lashing the two topmasts together and making allowance for their unequal length at the point of intersection i attached the double block of the main throat halyards This, with the single block and the throat halyards themselves, gave me a hoisting tackle. To prevent the butts of the masts from slipping on the deck, I nailed down thick cleats. Everything in readiness, I made a line fast to the apex of the shears and carried it directly to the windlass. I was growing to have faith in that windlass, for it gave me power beyond all expectation. As usual, Maud held the turn while I heaved. The shears rose in the air. Then I discovered I had forgotten guy ropes. This necessitated my climbing the shears, which I did twice, before I finished guying it fore and aft and to either side. Twilight had set in by the time this was accomplished. Wolf Larsen, who had sat about and listened all afternoon and never opened his mouth, had taken himself off to the galley and started his supper. I felt quite stiff across the small of my back, so much so that I straightened up with an effort and with pain. I looked proudly at my work. It was beginning to show. I was wild with desire, like a child with a new toy, to hoist something with my shears. "'I wish it weren't so late,' I said. "'I'd like to see how it works.' "'Don't be a glutton, Humphrey,' Maud chided me. "'Remember, tomorrow is coming, and you're so tired now that you can hardly stand.' "'And you?' I said, with sudden solicitude, you must be very tired. You have worked hard and nobly. I am proud of you, Maud, Not half so proud as I am of you, nor with half the reason. She answered, looking at me straight in the eyes for a moment, with an expression in her own, and a dancing tremulous light which I had not seen before, and which gave me a pang of quick delight. I know not why, for I did not understand it. Then she dropped her eyes, to lift them again, laughing. "'If our friends could see us now,' she said, "'look at us. Have you ever paused for a moment to consider our appearance?' "'Yes, I have considered yours frequently,' I answered, puzzling over what I had seen in her eyes, and puzzled by her sudden change of subject. "'Mercy!' she cried. "'And what do I look like, pray?' "'A scarecrow, I'm afraid,' I replied just glance at your draggled skirts for instance look at those three-cornered tears and such a waste it would not require a sherlock holmes to deduce that you have been cooking over a campfire to say nothing of trying out seal blubber and to cap it all that cap and all that is the woman who wrote a kiss endured she made me an elaborate and stately courtesy and said as for you sir And yet, through the five minutes of banter which followed, there was a serious something underneath the fun, which I could not but relate to the strange and fleeting expression I had caught in her eyes. What was it? Could it be that our eyes were speaking, beyond the will of our speech? My eyes had spoken, I knew, until I had found the culprits out and silenced them. This had occurred several times but had she seen the clamour in them and understood and had her eyes so spoken to me what else could that expression have meant that dancing tremulous light and a something more which words could not describe and yet it could not be it was impossible besides i was not skilled in the speech of eyes i was only humphrey van weyden a bookish fellow who loved and to love and to wait and win love that surely was glorious enough for me and thus i thought even as we chaffed each other's appearance until we arrived ashore and there were other things to think about it's a shame after working hard all day that we cannot have an uninterrupted night's sleep i complained after supper but there can be no danger now from a blind man she queried i shall never be able to trust him i averred and far less now that he is blind. The liability is that his part helplessness will make him more malignant than ever. I know what I shall do tomorrow, the first thing, run out a light anchor and kedge the schooner off the beach, and each night when we come ashore in the boat Mr. Wolf Larsen will be left a prisoner on board. So this will be the last night we have to stand watch, and because of that it will go the easier. We were awake early and just finishing breakfast as daylight came. "'Oh, Humphrey!' I heard Maud cry in dismay and suddenly stop. I looked at her. She was gazing at the ghost. I followed her gaze, but could see nothing unusual. She looked at me and I looked inquiry back. "'The shears,' she said, and her voice trembled. I had forgotten their existence. I looked again could not see them. "'If he has,' I muttered savagely. She put her hand sympathetically on mine and said, "'You will have to begin over again.' "'Oh, believe me, my anger means nothing. I could not hurt a fly,' I smiled back bitterly. "'And the worst of it is, he knows it. You were right. If he has destroyed the shears, I shall do nothing except begin over again.' but i'll stand my watch on board hereafter i blurted out a moment later and if he interferes but i dare not stay ashore all night alone Maud was saying when i came back to myself it would be so much nicer if he would be friendly with us and help us we could all live comfortably aboard we will i asserted still savagely for the destruction of my beloved shears had hit me hard. That is, you and I will live aboard, friendly or not with Wolf Larsen. It's childish, I laughed later, for him to do such things, and for me to grow angry over them, for that matter. But my heart smote me when we climbed aboard and looked at the havoc he had done. The shears were gone altogether. The guys had been slashed right and left. The throat halyards which I had rigged were cut across through every part, and he knew I could not splice. A thought struck me. I ran to the windlass. It would not work. He had broken it. We looked at each other in consternation. Then I ran to the side. The masts, booms, and gaffs I had cleared were gone. He had found the lines which held them and cast them adrift. Tears were in Maud's eyes and i do believe they were for me i could have wept myself where now was our project of remasting the ghost he had done his work well i sat down on the hatch-combing and rested my chin on my hands in black despair he deserves to die i cried out and god forgive me i am not man enough to be his executioner but maud was by my side passing her hand soothingly through my hair, as though I were a child, and saying, "'There, there, it will all come right. We are in the right, and it must come right.' I remembered Michelet, and leaned my head against her, and truly I became strong again. The blessed woman was an unfailing font of power to me. What did it matter? Only a setback, a delay. The tide could not have carried the masts far to seaward, and there had been no wind. It meant merely more work to find them and tow them back. And besides, it was a lesson. I knew what to expect. He might have waited and destroyed our work more effectually when we had more accomplished. "'Here he comes now,' she whispered. I glanced up. He was strolling leisurely along the poop on the port side. "'Take no notice of him.' I whispered he's coming to see how we take it don't let him know that we know we can deny him that satisfaction take off your shoes that's right and carry them in your hand and then we played hide-and-seek with the blind man as he came up the port side we slipped past on his starboard and from the poop we watched him turn and start aft on our track he must have known somehow that we were on board for he said "'Good morning!' very confidently, and waited for the greeting to be returned. Then he strolled aft, and we slipped forward. "'Oh, I know you're aboard!' he called out, and I could see him listen intently after he had spoken. It reminded me of the great hoot-owl listening, after its booming cry, for the stir of its frightened prey. But we did not stir, and we moved only when he moved. And so we dodged about the deck hand in hand like a couple of children chased by a wicked ogre, till Wolf Larsen, evidently in disgust, left the deck for the cabin. There was glee in our eyes, and suppressed titters in our mouths as we put on our shoes and clambered over the side into the boat. And as I looked into Maud's clear brown eyes, I forgot the evil he had done, and I knew only that I loved her. And that, because of her, the strength was mine to win our way back to the world. End of Chapter Thirty-Five. Chapter Thirty-Six of the Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Thirty-Six. For two days Maud and I ranged the sea and explored the beaches in search of the missing masts. But it was not till the third day that we found them, all of them, the shears included, and, of all perilous places, in the pounding surf of the grim southwestern promontory. And how we worked. At the dark end of the first day we returned exhausted to our little cove, towing the mainmast behind us, and we had been compelled to row in a dead calm practically every inch of the way. Another day of heartbreaking and dangerous toil saw us in camp with the two topmasts to the good. The day following I was desperate, and I rafted together the foremast, the fore and main booms, and the fore and main gaffs. The wind was favorable, and I had thought to tow them back under sail. But the wind baffled, then died away, and our progress with the oars was a snail's pace. And it was such dispiriting effort. To throw one's whole strength and weight on the oars and to feel the boat checked in its forward lunge by the heavy drag behind was not exactly exhilarating. Night began to fall, and to make matters worse, the wind sprang up ahead. Not only did all forward motion cease, but we began to drift back and out to sea. I struggled at the oars till I was played out. Poor Maud, whom I could never prevent from working to the limit of her strength, lay weakly back in the stern-sheets. I could row no more. My bruised and swollen hands could no longer close on the oar handles. My wrists and arms ached intolerably and though I had eaten heartily of a twelve-o'clock lunch, I had worked so hard that I was faint from hunger. I pulled in the oars and bent forward to the line which held the toe, but Maud's hand leaped out restrainingly to mine. "'What are you going to do?' she asked in a strained, tense voice. "'Cast it off,' I answered, slipping a turn of the rope, but her fingers closed on mine. "'Please don't,' she begged. It is useless, I answered. Here is night and the wind blowing us off the land. But think, Humphrey, if we cannot sail away on the ghost, we may remain for years on the island, for life even. If it has never been discovered all these years, it may never be discovered. You forget the boat we found on the beach, I reminded her. It was a seal-hunting boat, she replied. And you know perfectly well that if the men had escaped, they would have been back to make their fortunes from the rookery. You know they never escaped. I remained silent, undecided. Besides, she added haltingly, it's your idea, and I want to see you succeed. Now I could harden my heart. As soon as she put it on a flattering personal basis, generosity compelled me to deny her. Better years on the island than to die tonight or tomorrow, or the next day in the open boat. We are not prepared to brave the sea. We have no food, no water, no blankets, nothing. Why, you'd not survive the night without blankets. I know how strong you are. You are shivering now. It is only nervousness, she answered. I am afraid you will cast off the masts in spite of me oh please please humphrey don't she burst out a moment later and so it ended with the phrase she knew had all power over me we shivered miserably throughout the night now and again i fitfully slept but the pain of the cold always aroused me how maud could stand it was beyond me i was too tired to thrash my arms about and warm myself but I found strength time and again to chafe her hands and feet to restore the circulation. And still she pleaded with me not to cast off the masts. About three in the morning she was caught by a cold cramp, and after I had rubbed her out of that she became quite numb. I was frightened. I got out the oars and made her row, though she was so weak I thought she would faint at every stroke. Morning broke, and we looked long in the growing light for our island. At last it showed small and black on the horizon, fully fifteen miles away. I scanned the sea with my glasses. Far away in the southwest, I could see a dark line on the water, which grew even as I looked at it. Fair wind, I cried in a husky voice I did not recognize as my own. Maud tried to reply, but could not speak. Her lips were blue with cold, and she was hollow-eyed, but, oh, how bravely her brown eyes looked at me, how piteously brave. Again I fell to chafing her hands and to moving her arms up and down and about until she could thrash them herself. Then I compelled her to stand up. AND THOUGH SHE WOULD HAVE FALLEN HAD I NOT SUPPORTED HER, I FORCED HER TO WALK BACK AND FORTH THE SEVERAL STEPS BETWEEN THE THWART AND THE STERN SHEETS, AND FINALLY TO SPRING UP AND DOWN. Oh, you brave, brave woman, I said when I saw the life coming back into her face. Did you know that you were brave? I never used to be, she answered. I was never brave till I knew you. It is you who have made me brave nor i until i knew you i answered she gave me a quick look and again i caught that dancing tremulous light and something more in her eyes but it was only for the moment then she smiled it must have been the conditions she said but i knew she was wrong and i wondered if she likewise knew Then the wind came, fair and fresh, and the boat was soon laboring through a heavy sea toward the island. At half-past three in the afternoon, we passed the southwestern promontory. Not only were we hungry, but we were now suffering from thirst. Our lips were dry and cracked, nor could we longer moisten them with our tongues. Then the wind slowly died down. By night it was dead calm, and I was toiling once more at the oars but weekly most weekly at two in the morning the boat's bow touched the beach of our own inner cove and i staggered out to make the painter fast Maud could not stand nor had i strength to carry her i fell in the sand with her and when i had recovered contented myself with putting my hands under her shoulders and dragging her up the beach to the hut the next day we did no work In fact, we slept till three in the afternoon, or at least I did, for I awoke to find Maud cooking dinner. Her power of recuperation was wonderful. There was something tenacious about that lily-frail body of hers, a clutch on existence which one could not reconcile with its patent weakness. You know I was traveling to Japan for my health, she said, as we lingered at the fire after dinner and delighted in the movelessness of loafing i was not very strong i never was the doctors recommended a sea voyage and i chose the longest you little knew what you were choosing (laughs) i laughed but i shall be a different woman for the experience as well as a stronger woman she answered and i hope a better woman at least i shall understand a great deal more of life then, as the short day waned, we fell to discussing Wolf Larsen's blindness. It was inexplicable, and that it was grave I instanced his statement that he intended to stay and die on Endeavour Island. When he, strong man that he was, loving life as he did, accepted his death, it was plain that he was troubled by something more than mere blindness. There had been his terrific headaches. And we were agreed that it was some sort of brain breakdown, and that in his attacks he endured pain beyond our comprehension. I noticed as we talked over his condition that Maud's sympathy went out to him more and more. Yet I could not but love her for it, so sweetly womanly was it. Besides, there was no false sentiment about her feeling. She was agreed that the most rigorous treatment was necessary if we were to escape, though she recoiled at the suggestion that I might sometime be compelled to take his life to save my own. Our own, she put it. In the morning we had breakfast and were at work by daylight. I found a light kedge anchor in the forehold where such things were kept, and with a deal of exertion got it on deck and into the boat. With a long running line coiled down in the stern, I rowed well out into our little cove and dropped the anchor into the water. There was no wind, the tide was high, and the schooner floated. Casting off the shore lines, I ketched her out by main strength, the windlass being broken, till she rowed nearly up and down to the small anchor, too small to hold her in any breeze, So I lowered the big starboard anchor, giving plenty of slack, and by afternoon I was at work on the windlass. Three days I worked on that windlass. Least of all things was I a mechanic, and in that time I accomplished what an ordinary machinist would have done in as many hours. I had to learn my tools to begin with and every simple mechanical principle which such a man would have had at his finger-ends i had likewise to learn and at the end of three days i had a windlass which worked clumsily it never gave the satisfaction the old windlass had given but it worked and made my work possible in half a day i got the two topmasts aboard and the shears rigged and guided as before and that night i slept on board and on deck beside my work Maud, who refused to stay alone ashore, slept in a forecastle. Wolf Larsen had sat about listening to my repairing the windows and talking with Maud and me upon indifferent subjects. No reference was made on either side to the destruction of the shears, nor did he say anything further about my leaving his ship alone. But still I had feared him, blind and helpless in listening, always listening and I never let his strong arms get within reach of me while I worked. On this night, sleeping under my beloved shears, I was aroused by his footsteps on the deck. It was a starlight night, and I could see the bulk of him dimly as he moved about. I rolled out of my blankets and crept noiselessly after him in my stocking feet. He had armed himself with a draw knife from the tool locker, and with this he prepared to cut across the throat halyards I had again rigged to the shears. He felt the halyards with his hands and discovered that I had not made them fast. This would not do for a draw knife, so he laid hold of the running part, hove taut, and made fast. Then he prepared to saw across with the draw knife. I wouldn't if I were you, I said quietly. He heard the click of my pistol and laughed. (laughs) Hello, Hump, he said. I knew you were here all the time. You can't fool my ears. That's a lie, Wolf Larson, I said just as quietly as before. However, I am aching for a chance to kill you, so go ahead and cut. You have the chance always, he sneered. Go ahead and cut, I threatened ominously. (laughs) I'd rather disappoint you he laughed and turned on his heels and went aft something must be done humphrey maud said next morning when i had told her of the night's occurrence if he has liberty he may do anything he may sink the vessel or set fire to it there is no telling what he may do we must make him a prisoner but how i asked with a helpless shrug i dare not come within reach of his arms and he knows that so long as his resistance is passive i cannot shoot him there must be some way she contended let me think there is one way i said grimly she waited i picked up a seal club it won't kill him i said and before he could recover i'd have him bound hard and fast she shook her head with a shudder no not that there must be some less brutal let us wait. But we did not have to wait long, and the problem solved itself. In the morning, after several trials, I found the point of balance in the foremast and attached my hoisting tackle a few feet above it. Maud held the turn on the windlass and coiled down while I heaved. Had the windlass been in order, it would not have been so difficult. As it was, I was compelled to apply all my weight and strength to every inch of the heaving. I had to rest frequently. In truth, my spells of resting were longer than those of working. Maud even contrived at times when all my efforts could not budge the windlass to hold the turn with one hand and with the other to throw the weight of her slim body to my assistance. At the end of an hour, the single and double blocks came together at the top of the shears. I could hoist no more, and yet the mast was not swung entirely inboard. The butt rested against the outside of the port rail, while the top of the mast overhung the water far beyond the starboard rail. My shears were too short. All my work had been for nothing. But I no longer despaired in the old way. I was acquiring more confidence in myself, and more confidence in the possibilities of windlasses, shears, and hoisting tackles. There was a way in which it could be done, and it remained for me to find that way. While I was considering the problem, Wolf Larsen came on deck. We noticed something strange about him at once. The indecisiveness or feebleness of his movements was more pronounced. His walk was actually tottery as he came down the port side of the cabin. At the break of the poop, he reeled, raised one hand to his eyes with the familiar brushing gesture, and fell down the steps, still on his feet, to the main deck, across which he staggered, falling and flinging out his arms for support. He regained his balance by the steerage companionway and stood there dizzily for a space, when he suddenly crumpled up and collapsed, his legs bending under him as he sank to the deck. One of his attacks, I whispered to Maud. She nodded her head, and I could see sympathy warm in eyes. We went up to him, but he seemed unconscious, breathing spasmodically. She took charge of him, lifting his head to keep the blood out of it, and dispatching me to the cabin for a pillow. I also brought blankets, and we made him comfortable. I took his pulse. It beat steadily and strong, and was quite normal. This puzzled me. I became suspicious. What if he should be feigning this? I asked, still holding his wrist. Maud shook her head, and there was reproof in her eyes. But just then, the wrist I held leaped from my hand, and the hand clasped like a steel trap about my wrist. I cried aloud in awful fear, a wild, inarticulate cry. And I caught one glimpse of his face, malignant and triumphant, as his other hand compassed my body and I was drawn down to him in a terrible grip. My wrist was released, but his other arm, passed around my back, held both my arms so that I could not move. His free hand went to my throat, and in that moment I knew the bitterest foretaste of death earned by one's own idiocy. WHY HAD I TRUSTED MYSELF WITHIN REACH OF THOSE TERRIBLE ARMS? I COULD FEEL OTHER HANDS AT MY THROAT. THEY WERE MAUD'S HANDS, STRIVING VAINLY TO TEAR LOOSE THE HAND THAT WAS THROTTLING ME. SHE GAVE IT UP, AND I HEARD HER SCREAM IN A WAY THAT CUT ME TO THE SOUL, FOR IT WAS A WOMAN'S SCREAM OF FEAR AND HEARTBREAKING DESPAIR. I HAD HEARD IT BEFORE during the sinking of the Martinez. My face was against his chest and I could not see, but I heard Maud turn and run swiftly away along the deck. Everything was happening quickly. I had not yet had a glimmering of unconsciousness, and it seemed that an interminable period of time was lapsing before I heard her feet flying back. And just then I felt the whole man sink under me. The breath was leaving his lungs, and his chest was collapsing under my weight. Whether it was merely the expelled breath, or his consciousness of his growing impotence, I know not, but his throat vibrated with a deep groan. The hand at my throat relaxed. I breathed. It fluttered and tightened again. But even his tremendous will could not overcome the dissolution that assailed it. That will of his was breaking down. He was fainting. Maud's footsteps were very near as his hand fluttered for the last time and my throat was released. I rolled off and over to the deck on my back, gasping and blinking in the sunshine. Maud was pale but composed. My eyes had gone instantly to her face, and she was looking at me with mingled alarm and relief. A heavy seal club in her hand caught my eyes, and at that moment she followed my gaze down to it. The club dropped from her hand as though it had suddenly stung her, and at the same moment my heart surged with a great joy. Truly she was my woman, my mate-woman, fighting with me and for me as the mate of a caveman would have fought, all the primitive in her aroused, forgetful of her culture. "'hard under the softening civilization "'of the only life she had ever known. "'Dear woman!' I cried, scrambling to my feet. "'The next moment she was in my arms, "'weeping convulsively on my shoulder "'while I clasped her close. "'I looked down at the brown glory of her hair, "'glinting gems in the sunshine, "'far more precious to me "'than those in the treasure chest of kings.' And I bent my head and kissed her hair softly, so softly that she did not know. Then sober thought came to me. After all, she was only a woman crying her relief now that the danger was past in the arms of her protector or of the one who had been endangered. Had I been father or brother, the situation would have been nowise different. Besides, time and place were not meet, and I wished to earn a better right to declare my love. So once again I softly kissed her hair as I felt her receding from my clasp. "'It was a real attack this time,' I said. "'Another shock like the one that made him blind. He feigned at first, and in doing so brought it on. Maud was already rearranging his pillow. "'No,' I said, "'not yet.' now that i have him helpless helpless he shall remain from this day we live in the cabin wolf larsen shall live in the steerage i caught him under the shoulders and dragged him to the companionway at my direction Maud fetched the rope placing this under his shoulders i balanced him across the threshold and lowered him down the steps to the floor I could not lift him directly into a bunk, but with Maud's help I lifted first his shoulders and head, then his body, balanced him across the edge, and rolled him into a lower bunk. But this was not to be all. I recollected the handcuffs in his stateroom, which he preferred to use on sailors, instead of the ancient and clumsy ship irons. So, when we left him, he lay handcuffed, hand and foot. For the first time in many days I breathed freely. I felt strangely light as I came on deck, as though a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. I felt also that Maud and I had drawn more closely together, and I wondered if she too felt it, as we walked along the deck side by side, to where the stalled foremast hung in the shears. End of chapter 36 CHAPTER THIRTY-SEVEN OF THE SEA WOLF This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE SEA WOLF BY JACK LONDON CHAPTER THIRTY-SEVEN At once we moved aboard the Ghost, occupying our old staterooms and cooking in the galley. The imprisonment of Wolf Larsen had happened most opportunely, for what must have been the Indian summer of this high latitude was gone and drizzling stormy weather had set in we were very comfortable and the inadequate shears with the foremast suspended from them gave a businesslike air to the schooner and a promise of departure and now that we had wolf larsen in irons how little did we need it like his first attack his second had been accompanied by serious disablement Maud made the discovery in the afternoon while trying to give him nourishment. He had shown signs of consciousness, and she had spoken to him, eliciting no response. He was lying on his left side at the time, and in evident pain. With a restless movement he rolled his head around, clearing his left ear from the pillow against which it had been pressed. At once he heard and answered her, and at once she came to me pressing the pillow against his left ear i asked him if he heard me but he gave no sign removing the pillow and repeating the question he answered promptly that he did do you know that you are deaf in the right ear i asked yes he answered in a low strong voice and worse than that my whole right side is affected it seems asleep i cannot move arm or leg feigning again i demanded angrily he shook his head his stern mouth shaping the strangest twisted smile it was indeed a twisted smile for it was on the left side only the facial muscles of the right side moving not at all that was the last play of the wolf he said i am paralyzed i shall never walk again oh only on the other side he added as though divining the suspicious glance i flung at his left leg the knee of which had just then drawn up and elevated the blankets. "'It's unfortunate,' he continued. "'I'd like to have done for you first, Hump, "'and I thought I had that much left in me.' "'But why?' I asked, partly in horror, partly out of curiosity. "'Again his stern mouth framed a twisted smile, as he said, "'Oh, just to be alive, to be living and doing.' to be the biggest bit of the ferment to the end, to eat you, but to die this way. He shrugged his shoulders, or attempted to shrug them, rather, for the left shoulder alone moved. Like the smile, the shrug was twisted. But how can you account for it? I asked. Where is the seat of your trouble? The brain, he said at once. It was those cursed headaches brought it on. Symptoms, I said he nodded his head there is no accounting for it i was never sick in my life something's gone wrong with my brain a cancer a tumor or something of that nature a thing that devours and destroys it's attacking my nerve centers eating them up bit by bit cell by cell from the pain the motor centers too i suggested so it would seem and the curse of it is that i must lie here conscious mentally unimpaired knowing that the lines are going down breaking bit by bit communication with the world i cannot see hearing and feeling or leaving me at this rate i shall soon cease to speak yet all the time i shall be here alive active and powerless when you say you are here i'd suggest the likelihood of the soul i said "Bosh," was his retort it simply means that in the attack on my brain the higher psychical centers are untouched i can remember i can think and reason when that goes i go i am not the soul he broke out in mocking laughter then turned his left ear to the pillow as a sign that he wished no further conversation Maud and I went about our work, oppressed by the fearful fate which had overtaken him. How fearful we were yet fully to realize. There was the awfulness of retribution about it. Our thoughts were deep and solemn, and we spoke to each other scarcely above whispers. "'You might remove the handcuffs,' he said that night, as we stood in consultation over him. "'It's dead safe. I'm a paralytic now.' The next thing to watch out for is bed-sores.' He smiled his twisted smile, and Maud, her eyes wide with horror, was compelled to turn away her head. "'Do you know that your smile is crooked?' I asked him, for I knew that she must attend him, and I wished to save her as much as possible. "'Then I shall smile no more,' he said calmly. "'I thought something was wrong. My right cheek has been numb all day.' "'Yes, and I've had warnings of this for the last three days. By spells. "'My right side seemed going to sleep, "'sometimes arm or hand, sometimes leg or foot. "'So my smile is crooked,' he queried a short while after. "'Well, consider henceforth that I smile internally, "'with my soul, if you please, my soul. "'Consider that I am smiling now.' "'And for the space of several minutes he lay there quiet. Indulging his grotesque fancy. The man of him was not changed. It was the old, indomitable, terrible Wolf Larsen, imprisoned somewhere within that flesh which had once been so invincible and splendid. Now it bound him with insentient fetters, walling his soul in darkness and silence, blocking it from the world which to him had been a riot of action. No more would he conjugate the verb to do in every mood and tense. To be was all that remained to him. To be, as he had defined death without movement, to will, but not to execute. To think in reason and in the spirit of him, to be alive as ever, but in the flesh to be dead, quite dead. And yet, though I even removed the handcuffs, we could not adjust ourselves to his condition. Our minds revolted. To us, he was full of potentiality. We knew not what to expect of him next, what fearful thing, rising above the flesh, he might break out and do. Our experience warranted this state of mind, and we went about our work with anxiety always upon us i had solved the problem which had arisen through the shortness of the shears by means of the watch tackle i had made a new one i heaved the butt of the foremast across the rail and then lowered it to the deck next by means of the shears i hoisted the main boom on board its forty feet of length would supply the height necessary properly to swing the mast By means of a secondary tackle I had attached to the shears, I swung the boom to a nearly perpendicular position, then lowered the butt to the deck where, to prevent slipping, I spiked great cleats around it, the single block of my original shears tackle I had attached to the end of the boom. Thus, by carrying this tackle to the windlass, I could raise and lower the end of the boom at will, the butt always remaining stationary and by means of guise i could swing the boom from side to side to the end of the boom i had likewise rigged a hoisting tackle and when the whole arrangement was completed i could not but be startled by the power and latitude it gave me of course two days work was required for the accomplishment of this part of my task and it was not till the morning of the third day that i swung the foremast from the deck and proceeded to square its butt to fit the step. Here I was especially awkward. I sawed and chopped and chiseled the weathered wood till it had the appearance of having been gnawed by some gigantic mouse. But it fitted. It will work! I know it will work! I cried. Do you know Dr. Jordan's final test of truth? Maud asked. I shook my head and paused in the act of dislodging the shavings which had drifted down my neck. Can we make it work? Can we trust our lives to it, is the test. He is a favorite of yours, I said. When I dismantled my old pantheon and cast out Napoleon and Caesar and their fellows, I straightway erected a new pantheon, she answered gravely, and the first I installed as Dr. Jordan. A modern hero. And a greater because modern, she added. How can the old world heroes compare with ours? I shook my head. We were too much alike in many things for argument. Our points of view and outlook on life, at least, were very alike. For a pair of critics, we agree famously, I laughed. And as shipwright and able assistant, she laughed back. BUT THERE WAS LITTLE TIME FOR LAUGHTER IN THOSE DAYS, WHAT OF OUR HEAVY WORK AND OF THE AWFULNESS OF WOLF Larsen's LIVING DEATH. HE HAD RECEIVED ANOTHER STROKE. HE HAD LOST HIS VOICE, OR HE WAS LOSING IT. HE HAD ONLY INTERMITTENT USE OF IT. AS HE PHRASED IT, THE WIRES WERE LIKE THE STOCK MARKET, NOW UP, NOW DOWN. OCCASIONALLY THE WIRES WERE UP, AND HE SPOKE AS WELL AS EVER, THOUGH SLOWLY AND HEAVILY. Then, speech would suddenly desert him, in the middle of a sentence, perhaps, and for hours sometimes we would wait for the connection to be re-established. He complained of great pain in his head, and it was during this period that he arranged a system of communication against the time when speech should leave him altogether. One pressure of the hand for yes, two for no. It was well that it was arranged— FOR BY EVENING HIS VOICE HAD GONE FROM HIM. BY HAND PRESSURES AFTER THAT HE ANSWERED OUR QUESTIONS, AND WHEN HE WISHED TO SPEAK, HE SCRAWLED HIS THOUGHTS WITH HIS LEFT HAND, QUITE LEGIBLY, ON A SHEET OF PAPER. THE FIERCE WINTER HAD NOW DESCENDED UPON US. GALE FOLLOWED GALE WITH SNOW AND SLEET AND RAIN. THE SEALS HAD STARTED ON THEIR GREAT SOUTHERN MIGRATION, AND THE ROOKERY WAS PRACTICALLY DESERTED. I worked feverishly, in spite of the bad weather, and of the wind, which especially hindered me, I was on deck from daylight till dark, and making substantial progress. I profited by my lesson learned through raising the shears, and then climbing them to attach the guys To the top of the foremast, which was just lifted conveniently from the deck, I attached the rigging, stays, and throat and peak halyards. As usual, I had underrated the amount of work involved in this portion of the task, and two long days were necessary to complete it. And there was so much yet to be done. The sails, for instance, which practically had to be made over. While I toiled at rigging the foremast, Maud sewed on canvas, ready always to drop everything and come to my assistance when more hands than two were required the canvas was heavy and hard and she sewed with the regular sailor's palm and three-cornered sail-needle her hands were soon sadly blistered but she struggled bravely on and in addition doing the cooking and taking care of the sick man a fig for superstition i said on friday morning that mast goes in to-day everything was ready for the attempt carrying the boom tackle to the windlass i hoisted the mast nearly clear of the deck making this tackle fast i took to the windlass the shears tackle which was connected with the end of the boom and with a few turns had the mast perpendicular and clear maud clapped her hands the instant she was relieved from holding the turn crying it works it works we'll trust our lives to it then she assumed a rueful expression It's not over the hole, she added. Will you have to begin all over? I smiled in superior fashion, and, slacking off on one of the boom guys and taking in on the other, swung the mast perfectly in the center of the deck. Still it was not over the hole. Again the rueful expression came on her face, and again I smiled in a superior way slacking away on the boom tackle and hoisting an equivalent amount on the shears tackle i brought the butt of the mast into position directly over the hole in the deck then i gave maud careful instructions for lowering away and went into the hole to the step on the schooner's bottom i called to her and the mast moved easily and accurately straight toward the square hole of the step the square butt descended but as it descended, it slowly twisted, so that square would not fit into square. But I had not even a moment's indecision. Calling to Maud to cease lowering, I went on deck and made the watch tackle fast to the mast with a rolling hitch. I left Maud to pull on it while I went below. By the light of the lantern, I saw the butt twist slowly around till its sides coincided with the sides of the step. Maud made fast and returned to the windlass. Slowly the butt descended, the several intervening inches, at the same time slightly twisting again. Again Maud rectified the twist with the watch-tackle, and again she lowered away from the windlass. Square fitted into square. The mast was stepped. I raised a shout, and she ran down to sea. In the yellow lantern light we peered at what we had accomplished. We looked at each other, and our hands felt their way and clasped. The eyes of both of us, I think, were moist with the joy of success. It was done so easily, after all, I remarked. All the work was in the preparation. And all the wonder in the completion, Maud added. I could scarcely bring myself to realize that that great mast is really up and in, that you have lifted it from the water, swung it through the air, and deposited it here where it belongs. It is a Titan's task. And they made themselves many inventions. I began merrily, then paused to sniff the air. I looked hastily at the lantern. It was not smoking. Again I sniffed. Something is burning, Maud said with sudden conviction we sprang together for the ladder but i raced past her to the deck a dense volume of smoke was pouring out of the steerage companionway the wolf is not yet dead i muttered to myself as i sprang down through the smoke it was so thick in the confined space that i was compelled to feel my way and so potent was the spell of wolf larsen on my imagination I was quite prepared for the helpless giant to grip my neck in a stranglehold. I hesitated, the desire to race back and up the steps to the deck almost overpowering me. Then I recollected Maud. The vision of her as I had last seen her in the lantern light of the schooner's hold, her brown eyes warm and moist with joy, flashed before me, and I knew that I could not go back. I was choking and suffocating by the time I reached Wolf Larsen's bunk. I reached my hand and felt for his. He was lying motionless, but moved slightly at the touch of my hand. I felt over and under his blankets. There was no warmth, no sign of fire. Yet that smoke which blinded me and made me cough and gasp must have a source. I lost my head temporarily and dashed frantically about the steerage a collision with the table partially knocked the wind from my body and brought me to myself i reasoned that a helpless man could start a fire only near to where he lay i returned to wolf larsen's bunk there i encountered maud how long she had been there in that suffocating atmosphere i could not guess go up on deck i commanded peremptorily but humphrey she began to protest in a queer husky voice "'Please, please!' I shouted at her harshly. She drew away obediently, and then I thought, "'Why does she cannot find the steps?' I started after her to stop at the foot of the companionway. Perhaps she had gone up. As I stood there hesitant, I heard her cry softly, "'Oh, Humphrey, I am lost!' I found her fumbling at the wall of the after-bulkhead. And half leading her, half carrying her, I took her up the companionway. The pure air was like nectar. Maud was only faint and dizzy, and I left her lying on the deck when I took my second plunge below. The source of the smoke must be very close to wolf Larsen. My mind was made up to this, and I went straight to his bunk. As I felt about among his blankets, something hot fell on the back of my hand. It burned me, and I jerked my hand away. Then I understood through the cracks in the bottom of the upper bunk he had set fire to the mattress. He still retained sufficient use of his left arm to do this. The damp straw of the mattress, fired from beneath and denied air, had been smouldering all the while. As I dragged the mattress out of the bunk, it seemed to disintegrate in midair, at the same time bursting into flames. I beat out the burning remnants of straw in the bunk, then made a dash for the deck for fresh air. Several buckets of water sufficed to put out the burning mattress in the middle of the steerage floor, and ten minutes later, when the smoke had fairly cleared, I allowed Maud to come below. Wolf Larsen was unconscious, but it was a matter of minutes for the fresh air to restore him. We were working over him, however, when he signed for paper and pencil. "'Pray do not interrupt me,' he wrote. "'I am smiling.' "'I am still a bit of the ferment, you see,' he wrote a little later. "'I'm glad you are as small a bit as you are,' I said. "'Thank you,' he wrote. "'But just think of how much smaller I shall be before I die. "'And yet I am all here, hump,' he wrote with a final flourish." I can think more clearly than ever in my life before. Nothing to disturb me. Concentration is perfect. I am all here and more than here. It was like a message from the night of the grave, for this man's body had become his mausoleum. And there, in so strange a sepulcher, his spirit fluttered and lived. It would flutter and live till the last line of communication was broken. And after that, who was to say how much longer it might continue to flutter and live end of chapter 37 chapter 38 of the sea wolf this librivox recording is in the public domain the sea wolf by jack london chapter 38 i think my left side is going "'Wolf Larsen wrote the morning after his attempt to fire the ship. "'The numbness is growing. "'I can hardly move my hand. "'You will have to speak louder. "'The last lines are going down.' "'Are you in pain?' I asked. "'I was compelled to repeat my question loudly before he answered. "'Not all the time.' "'The left hand stumbled slowly and painfully across the paper, "'and it was with extreme difficulty that we deciphered the scrawl. It was like a spirit message, such as are delivered at séances of spiritualists for a dollar admission. But I am still here, all here, the hand scrawled more slowly and painfully than ever. The pencil dropped, and we had to replace it in the hand. When there is no pain, I have perfect peace and quiet. I have never thought so clearly i can ponder life and death like a hindu sage and immortality maud queried loudly in the ear three times the hand essayed to write but fumbled hopelessly the pencil fell in vain we tried to replace it the fingers could not close on it then maud pressed and held the fingers about the pencil with her own hand and the hand wrote in large letters AND SO SLOWLY THAT THE MINUTES TICKED OFF TO EACH LETTER B-O-S-H. IT WAS WOLF LARSEN'S LAST WORD, BOSH, SKEPTICAL AND INVINCIBLE TO THE END. THE ARM AND HAND RELAXED, THE TRUNK OF THE BODY MOVED SLIGHTLY. THEN THERE WAS NO MOVEMENT. MAUD RELEASED THE HAND. The fingers spread slightly, falling apart of their own weight, and the pencil rolled away. Do you still hear? I shouted, holding the fingers and waiting for the single pressure which would signify yes. There was no response. The hand was dead. I noticed the lips slightly move, Maud said. I repeated the question. The lips moved. She placed the tips of her fingers on them again i repeated the question yes Maud announced we looked at each other expectantly what good is it i asked what can we say now oh ask him she hesitated ask him something that requires no for an answer i suggested then we will know for certainty are you hungry she cried the lips moved under her fingers and she answered yes will you have some beef Was her next query no she announced beef tea yes we will have some beef tea she said quietly looking up at me until his hearing goes we shall be able to communicate with him and after that she looked at me queerly i saw her lips trembling and the tears swimming up in her eyes she swayed toward me and i caught her in my arms oh humphrey she sobbed When will it all end? I am so tired, so tired. She buried her head on my shoulder, her frail form shaken with a storm of weeping. She was like a feather in my arms, so slender, so ethereal. She has broken down at last, I thought. What can I do without her help? but i soothed and comforted her till she pulled herself bravely together and recuperated mentally as quickly as she was wont to do physically i ought to be ashamed of myself she said then added with a whimsical smile i adored but i am only one small woman that phrase the one small woman startled me like an electric shock it was my own phrase my pet secret phrase my love phrase for her where did you get that phrase i demanded with an abruptness that in turn startled her what phrase she asked one small woman is it yours she asked yes i answered mine i made it then you must have talked in your sleep she smiled the dancing tremulous light was in her eyes Mine, I knew, were speaking beyond the will of my speech. I leaned toward her. Without volition, I leaned toward her, as a tree is swayed by the wind. Ah, we were very close together in that moment. But she shook her head as one might shake off sleep or a dream, saying, I have known it all my life. It was my father's name for my mother. It is my phrase, too, I said stubbornly for your mother no i answered and she questioned no further though i could have sworn her eyes retained for some time a mocking teasing expression with the foremast in the work now went on apace almost before i knew it and without one serious hitch i had the mainmast stepped a derrick boom rigged to the foremast had accomplished this and several days more found all stays and shrouds in place and everything set up taut. Top sails would be a nuisance and a danger for a crew of two, so I heaved the topmast on deck and lashed them fast. Several more days were consumed in finishing the sails and putting them on. There were only three, the jib, foresail, and mainsail, and patched, shortened, and distorted, they were a ridiculously ill-fitting suit for so trim a craft as the ghost. But they'll work, Maud cried jubilantly. We'll make them work and trust our lives to them. Certainly among my many new trades, I shone least as a sailmaker. I could sail them better than make them. And I had no doubt of my power to bring the schooner to some northern port of Japan. In fact, I had crammed navigation from textbooks aboard, and besides, there was Wolf Larsen's star scale, so simple a device that a child could work it. As for its inventor, beyond an increasing deafness and the movement of his lips growing fainter and fainter, there had been little change in his condition for a week, but on the day we finished bending the schooner's sails, he heard his last, and the last movement of his lips died away. But not before I had asked him, Are you all there? And the lips had answered, Yes. The last line was down. Somewhere within that tomb of the flesh still dwelt the soul of the man. Walled by the living clay, that fierce intelligence we had known burned on, but it burned on in silence and darkness. And it was disembodied. To that intelligence, there could be no objective knowledge of a body. It knew no body. The very world was not. It knew only itself and the vastness and profundity of the quiet and the dark. End of chapter 38. Chapter 39 of the Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 39. The day came for our departure. There was no longer anything to detain us on Endeavor Island. The ghost's stumpy masts were in place, her crazy sails bent. All my handiwork was strong, none of it beautiful, but I knew it would work, and I felt myself a man of power as I looked at it. I did it! I did it with my own hands! I did it! I wanted to cry aloud but maud and i had a way of voicing each other's thoughts and she said as we prepared to hoist the mainsail to think humphrey you did it all with your own hands but there were two other hands i answered two small hands and don't say that was a phrase also of your father she laughed and shook her head and held her hands up for inspection i can never get them clean again she wailed nor soften the weather beat THEN DIRT AND WEATHERBEAT SHALL BE YOUR garden OF HONOR, I SAID, HOLDING THEM IN MINE, AND, in SPITE OF MY RESOLUTIONS, I WOULD HAVE KISSED THE TWO DEAR HANDS, HAD SHE NOT SWIFTLY WITHDRAWN THEM. OUR COMRADESHIP WAS BECOMING TREMULOUS. I HAD MASTERED MY LOVE LONG AND WELL, BUT NOW IT WAS MASTERING ME. WILLFULLY HAD IT DISOBEYED AND WON MY EYES TO SPEECH, AND NOW IT WAS WINNING MY TONGUE. I and my lips for they were mad this moment to kiss the two small hands which had toiled so faithfully and hard and i too was mad there was a cry in my being like bugles calling me to her and there was a wind blowing upon me which i could not resist swaying the very body of me till i leaned toward her all unconscious that i leaned and she knew it she could not but know it as she swiftly drew away her hands and yet could not forbear one quick searching look before she turned away her eyes by means of deck tackles i had arranged to carry the halyards forward to the windlass and now i hoisted the mainsail peak and throat at the same time it was a clumsy way but it did not take long and soon the foresail as well was up and fluttering we can never get that anchor up in this narrow place once it has left the bottom i said we should be on the rocks first what can you do she asked slip it was my answer and when i do you must do your first work on the windlass i shall have to run at once to the wheel and at the same time you must be hoisting the jib this maneuver of getting under way i had studied and worked out a score of times and with the jib halyard to the windlass i knew maud was capable of hoisting that most necessary sail a brisk wind was blowing into the cove and though the water was calm, rapid work was required to get us safely out. When I knocked the shackle bolt loose, the chain roared out through the hoss hole and into the sea. I raced aft, putting the wheel up. The ghost seemed to start into life as she healed to the first fill of her sails. The jib was rising. As it filled, the ghost's bow swung off, and I had to put the wheel down a few spokes and steady her. I had devised an automatic jib-sheet, which passed the jib across of itself, so there was no need for Maud to attend to that, but she was still hoisting the jib when I put the wheel hard down. It was a moment of anxiety, for the ghost was rushing directly upon the beach, a stone's throw distant. But she swung obediently on her heel into the wind. There was a great fluttering and flapping of canvas and reef points, most welcome to my ears. Then she filled away on the other tack, Maud had finished her task and come aft where she stood beside me. A small cap perched on her wind-blown hair, her cheeks flushed from exertion, her eyes wide and bright with the excitement, her nostrils quivering to the rush and bite of the fresh salt air. Her brown eyes were like a startled deer's, there was a wild, keen look in them I had never seen before and her lips parted and her breath suspended as the ghost charging upon the wall of rock at the entrance to the inner cove swept into the wind and filled away into safe water my first mate's berth on the sealing grounds stood me in good stead and i cleared the inner cove and laid a long tack along the shore of the outer cove once again about and the ghost headed out to open sea she had now caught the bosom-breathing of the ocean, and was herself a-breath with the rhythm of it as she smoothly mounted and slipped down each broad-backed wave. The day had been dull and overcast, but the sun now burst through the clouds, a welcome omen, and shone upon the curving beach where together we had dared the lords of the harem and slain the Chicky. All Endeavor Island brightened under the sun, even the grim southwestern promontories showed less grim and here and there where the sea spray wet its surface highlights flashed and dazzled in the sun i shall always think of it with pride i said to maud she threw her head back in a queenly way but said dear dear endeavor island i shall always love it and i i said quickly it seems our eyes must meet in a great understanding And yet, loath, they struggled away and did not meet. There was a silence I might almost call awkward, till I broke it, saying, See those black clouds to windward. Remember I told you last night the barometer was falling. And the sun is gone, she said, her eyes still fixed upon our island, where we had proved our mastery over matter and attained to the truest comradeship that may fall to man and woman. And it's slack off the sheets for Japan," I cried gaily. A fair wind and a flowing sheet, you know, or however it goes. Lashing the wheel, I ran forward, eased the and main sheets, took in on the boom tackles, and trimmed everything for the quartering breeze, which was ours. It was a fresh breeze, very fresh, but I resolved to run as long as I dared. Unfortunately, when running free, it is impossible to lash the wheel. So I faced an all night watch. Maud insisted on relieving me, but proved she had not the strength to steer in a heavy sea, even if she could have gained the wisdom on such short notice. She appeared quite heartbroken over the discovery, but recovered her spirits by coiling down tackles and halyards and all stray ropes. Then there were meals to be cooked in the galley, beds to make, wolf larsen to be attended upon and she finished the day with a grand house-cleaning attack upon the cabin and steerage. All night I steered without relief, the wind slowly and steadily increasing and the sea rising. At five in the morning, Maud brought me hot coffee and biscuits she had baked, and at seven, a substantial and piping hot breakfast put new lift into me. Throughout the day, and as slowly and steadily as ever, the wind increased. It impressed one with its sullen determination to blow, and blow harder, and keep on blowing. And still the ghost foamed along, racing off the miles till I was certain she was making at least eleven knots. It was too good to lose, but by nightfall I was exhausted, though in splendid physical trim a thirty-six-hour trick at the wheel was the limit of my endurance. Besides, Maud begged me to heave too and i knew if the wind and sea increased at the same rate during the night that it would soon be impossible to heave to so as twilight deepened gladly and at the same time reluctantly i brought the ghost up on the wind but i had not reckoned upon the colossal task the reefing of the three sails meant for one man while running away from the wind i had not appreciated its force but when we ceased to run i learned to my sorrow and well-nigh to my despair how fiercely it was really blowing the wind balked my every effort ripping the canvas out of my hands and in an instant undoing what i had gained by ten minutes of severest struggle at eight o'clock i had succeeded only in putting the second reef into the foresail at eleven o'clock i was no farther along blood dripped from every finger-end while the nails were broken to the quick from pain and sheer exhaustion i wept in the darkness secretly so that maud should not know then in desperation i abandoned the attempt to reef the mainsail and resolved to try the experiment of heaving to under the close-reefed foresail three hours more were required to gasket the mainsail and jib and at two in the morning nearly dead the life almost buffeted and worked out of me i had barely sufficient consciousness to know the experiment was a success the close-reefed foresail worked the ghost clung on close to the wind and betrayed no inclination to fall off broadside to the trough i was famished but maud tried vainly to get me to eat i dozed with my mouth full of food I would fall asleep in the act of carrying food to my mouth and waken in torment to find the act yet uncompleted. So sleepily helpless was I that she was compelled to hold me in my chair to prevent me being flung to the floor by the violent pitching of the schooner. Of the passage from the galley to the cabin, I knew nothing. It was a sleepwalker Maud, guided and supported. In fact, I was aware of nothing till I awoke how long after I could not imagine, in my bunk with my boots off. It was dark, I was stiff and lame, and I cried out with pain when the bedclothes touched my poor finger ends. Morning had evidently not come, so I closed my eyes and went to sleep again. I did not know it, but I had slept the clock around and it was night again. Once more I woke, troubled, because I could sleep no better. I struck a match and looked at my watch. It marked midnight, and I had not left the deck until three. I should have been puzzled had I not guessed the solution. No wonder I was sleeping brokenly. I had slept twenty-one hours. I listened for a while to the behavior of the ghost, to the pounding of the seas and the muffled roar of the wind on deck, and then turned over on my side and slept peacefully until morning. When I arose at seven, I saw no sign of Maud and concluded she was in the galley preparing breakfast on deck i found the ghost doing splendidly under her patch of canvas but in the galley though a fire was burning a water boiling i found no maud i discovered her in the steerage by wolf larsen's bunk i looked at him the man who had been hurled down from the topmost pitch of life to be buried alive and be worse than dead There seemed a relaxation of his expressionless face, which was new. Maud looked at me, and I understood. His life flickered out in the storm, I said. But he still lives, she answered, infinite faith in her voice. He had too great strength. Yes, she said, but now it no longer shackles him. He is a free spirit. He is a free spirit, surely, I answered and taking her hand, I led her on deck. The storm broke that night, which is to say that it diminished as slowly as it had arisen. After breakfast next morning, when I had hoisted Wolf Larsen's body on deck ready for burial, it was still blowing heavily, and a large sea was running. The deck was continually awash with the sea, which came inboard over the rail and through the scuppers. The wind smote the schooner with a sudden gust, and she heeled over till her lee-rail was buried, the roar in her rigging rising and pitched to a shriek. We stood in the water to our knees as I bared my head. I remember only one part of the service, I said, and that is, and the body shall be cast into the sea. Maud looked at me, surprised and shocked but the spirit of something I had seen before was strong upon me, impelling me to give service to wolf larsen as wolf larsen had once given service to another man. I lifted the end of the hatch cover and the canvas-shrouded body slipped feet first into the sea. The weight of iron dragged it down. It was gone. Goodbye, Lucifer, proud spirit, Maud whispered, so low that it was drowned by the shouting of the wind but I saw the movement of her lips and knew. As we clung to the lee-rail and worked our way aft, I happened to glance to leeward. The ghost at the moment was up-tossed on a sea, and I caught a clear view of a small steamship two or three miles away, rolling and pitching head-on to the sea as it steamed toward us. It was painted black, and from the talk of the hunters of their poaching exploits I recognized it as a United States revenue cutter. I pointed it out to Maud and hurriedly led her aft to the safety of the poop I started to rush below to the flag locker then remembered that rigging the ghost I had forgotten to make provision for a flag halyard we need no distress signal Maud said they have only to see us we are saved I said soberly and solemnly and then in an exuberance of joy i hardly know whether to be glad or not I looked at her. Our eyes were not loath to meet. We leaned toward each other, and before I knew it, my arms were about her. Need I? I asked. And she answered, there is no need, though the telling of it would be sweet, so sweet. Her lips met the press of mine, and, by what strange trick of the imagination I know not, the scene in the cabin of the ghost flashed upon me when she had pressed her fingers lightly on my lips and said hush hush my woman my one small woman i said my free hand petting her shoulder in the way all lovers know though never learn at school my man she said looking at me for an instant with tremulous lids which fluttered down and veiled her eyes as she snuggled her head against my breast with a happy little sigh I looked toward the cutter. It was very close. A boat was being lowered. One kiss, dear love, I whispered. One kiss more before they come, and rescue us from ourselves, she completed with a most adorable smile, whimsical as I had never seen it, for it was whimsical with love. End of Chapter 39 Recording by Nick Bolka End of the Sea Wolf